welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today's guest has been Mariana's friend since 1986, Dr. Tom Kaler. He's a Silicon Valley and AI giant. He's the founder of many AI companies, including IntelliCorp, an early AI tool developer and Mariana's first employer fresh out of school. He has a love for science that brought him a PhD in applied physics, and he has a deep love for AI, which made him become a serial entrepreneur in technology. Tom, it is a pleasure to have you on and uh, welcome to our podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Mariana. Good to uh, talk with you again. I have known you as a brilliant mind and a deeply caring uh, human being and um, loving father, grandfather and husband who has put himself in service of humanity using cognitive science and AI. Why and how have you become such a force for good in the world? What happened in your life that put you on this path? Well, that's a a really good question. First of all... um, uh, this may surprise you. You probably don't even know this, Mariana, even though you've known me a long time. I started out wanting to be a missionary. <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> and, that, though. <laughs> and so my, and my dad uh, had a lifelong thing in terms of serving other people. So I kind of grew up uh, in that kind of environment. And it was really kind of a, it was accidental the way I got deeply into science. I, well, my idea of being a missionary was more about uh, how can you bring literacy? And, and so I had very strong interest in language. And I also wanted to understand, well, how can we use, and this was a long time ago, right? So when I graduated from high school, uh, there were computers, but no personal computers. But I was very fascinated with how you might be able to use mathematics and computers to help in language, uh, particularly indigenous languages throughout the world where they didn't have um, a way to you know, preserve the language and the culture through literacy and all of that. So I got very fascinated with that, that idea. And, uh, but you can, you can see the inkling of that, that technology desire around language and mathematics and computers got us to where we are today in, in some way. So the turn that happened is uh, my scholarship, uh, I was on a scholarship at the university, and my scholarship uh, got, because of a political change in the government, uh, my scholarship was, I, I lost it. it, it was no longer funded. And uh, so I was in the hallways looking for what I can do to stay in school. And there was this wonderful professor by the name of Richard Corin who took me under his wing and uh, got me to work. He said, you know, I can make sure you have a, 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 I can even get you a graduate student stipend. I was an undergraduate at that time. For some reason, he saw potential in me. And he began, he said, look, you just have to work in my lab and you have to work in solid state physics. And so it was a little bit like, well, (laughs) if you want to stay in school, study this. And I did. And it turns out it was fortuitous, it was wonderful, and it really led to a lot of good things. So with that, I got more into, in that particular case in physics, into using, early on, computers and machine learning uh, in thin film physics. So uh, that was kind of the beginning. 
Beautiful story. Um, I've known you as a brilliant mind, of course, and I'm not surprised that your uh, mentor saw that in you. And uh, um, how? Why artificial intelligence? And well, yeah. I, I, good talk. Go ahead. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. Well, it, it, I understand that it provides a conceptual framework uh, to understand the mind and consciousness and the universe, which ties into your um, missionary mindset. Missionary um, could be associated with a, with an outdated uh, mindset, but that's I know who you are. That's not the traditional missionary. You're a missionary for peace and for love and for connection and so on. But AI, artificial intelligence, how did you come up with a link to take that into this direction? Well, the first of all, there was this interest in language and semantics. And uh, early on, even as, as early as in the late 60s, there had been a lot of work. In fact, from the very beginning of the invention of computers, there was an interest in uh, could we use computers for, you know, goes, in fact, even before there were computers, Leibniz wanted to create a knowledge calculator. And so this notion of um, language and computers has been around for a while, and it fascinated me. And literally, that's how I got started. So my initial research, uh, even uh, as I was in uh, as I was in various activities in research, it was very much grounded in this notion of language and linguistics, and and so that led to. Uh, knowledge, knowledge representation, and then ultimately into applications of artificial intelligence. Okay, so... Um, so to me was, I always was fascinated with the idea of using computers for things that didn't have to do with, you know, just simple calculation, that uh, there was this notion of uh, symbols, and what do those symbols mean, and how can you manipulate symbols, and that's really where the the roots of AI were in using initially uh, computers for symbolic reasoning, reasoning about things, and and just using it for logic and reasoning. Right. So uh, we'll get later maybe to this uh, connection to understanding the mind and consciousness and the universe and how AI ties in with or you know the dangerous because there are not only upsides but also. Um, um, downsides. So, but before we go there, I would like for you to, or to, you know, to explain to our audience how AI has evolved. You know, when you and I met back in 33 years ago, I can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> AI was defined in a different... <laughs> Yeah, AI was defined in a different way than today, and uh, in but today, you know, it's changed. That definition has changed. So I'd like to, uh, for you, maybe to take us through that and how um, AI, how you understand, how you work on AI now, and I'd like to go back to quote you a little bit on on a on a blog. You said uh, during the summer of Woodstock in, in 1969, and we all celebrate 50 years of this and that and the other these days. I was hunched over a Model 33 teletype connected to an IBM mainframe. 
and I'm, I'm still quoting, developing a program to learn a function from data. Yes, it was machine learning. And yes, it was using a method commonly used today as machine learning. Just two years earlier, I had written my first Fortran program on punch cards. <laughs> punch cards. Most people don't even know what those are. <laughs> yeah. And got, got unhooked. On Monday, Memorial Day 2017, fast forward, I was on my laptop at 5.45 a.m. writing code in Python for a deep learning program, and I'm still quoting, figuring out how to predict the success of startups. So um, take us through the evolution of AI and how, how that has evolved from the, you know, vision and, you know, understanding blah, 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 five pillars of AI back in 33 years ago into machine learning and what it's called today? Well, that's a very interesting question, Marianne. I hope not to give too long of an answer because you're, you're, you're poking into the things I love to talk about. So, <laughs> um, so he, there, actually, there were two forms of artificial intelligence going way, way back. They aren't so much chronological. So there was a mathematical side called machine learning which was learning functions from data. Um, and there were even notions of perceptrons and neural networks going way back to the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, and, and so those, you know, the, and so when I was doing that in 1969, that was really the, what we now call black box models, where we're simply trying to have a, machine learn from data. You don't write a program to do it. You simply set up a program that minimizes the error between what should be and what you're measuring, and you try to learn what's the best fit between them. So a lot of ways you can think about intelligence, we just don't know how to map one thing to another. So maybe we're associating what we see with an object, like a cat or a dog or whatever. That can be done with pure mathematics, just various ways of learning and training a system. You show it a cat, it's a cat. You show it a dog, but what it's doing is looking at the pixels and figuring that out. That's one part of machine learning, but it's gone, been around for some time. In fact, a lot of those a lot of mathematics goes the whole way back to work in physics um, in trying to understand complex things like neutron diffusion, and that was around you know, World War II and all that. So a lot of the things you see, like what are called Markov models, things of that sort, came out of that side, the mathematics side, the physics side of things. There was another side, which was, uh, and these were guys like McCarthy and Ed Feigenbaum, who you knew as well, uh, or know, uh, uh, still alive, uh, but, uh, these folks were looking at how can we use, and it was like a programming language like Lisp, how can we manipulate symbols and logic? Looking at, or more the philosophical side, things that emerged out of logic, logic programming and all of that. That's another part of AI, but that's a little bit closer to, think about it this way, how do we represent encyclopedic knowledge? How do we record, just how symbols relate to each other, how words relate to each other? That's another part of AI. And uh, around the 80s, the symbolic part of AI really took off in expert systems. And we had to essentially write programs that did logic, that performed the logic of an expert forecaster or decision maker. 
And so that was very popular and it worked. A lot of people think that the first wave of AI didn't work. It did work. It just wasn't scalable. The, the computers were too expensive to run it. And the people were very expensive that had to write those programs. And the other problem with the data-centered AI, the machine learning AI that was based on data, there just wasn't a lot of available data in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But when the internet came in, all of a sudden, there was a massive amount of data. There was data about everything. It was all being collected online. And guess what? Somewhere in the 90s, people started to recognize that these older techniques that had been developed some time ago, like neural networks, were suddenly applicable and they could be trained and developed and built. And that's where deep learning got its birth is as everyone started looking at all this data and what you could learn from data that got its birth. And guess what? That ran into a barrier now. And now you see, and you can see it in the literature, people are going back, well, can we marry the symbolic world that looks a lot more like people think with this mathematical world which can learn on its own? And can we bring those two together? And by the way, I believe that leads us to a lot safer world because I believe we should only develop AI systems that are explainable where they can explain what they're doing to humans so we can manage that situation. We need to develop better interfaces between humans and machines. And by bringing those two together, that's what we can do. And frankly, that's what I was, you know, when I was alluding to that in the article, that's what I was doing. We were looking at how do we create systems that will predict the success of a startup, but explain how it did it. And that way we can trust it. That notion of explanation builds trust. I, I, and I went pretty far into it, but anyway, there you, that, that's how the two, the, so the two have been around and they've coming together and they're, they're coming together now. You, in fact, DARPA is investing a lot of research dollars in how to build explainable AI because it's important. Thank you so very much for this because there is a lot of confusion uh, for those of us who've been in AI for so long, and this is how we met uh, 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 Tal. Actually, we never, we didn't meet uh, during HKI in 1983 in Kostor, uh where you showed uh, Key. I saw Key back then, but I haven't met, hadn't met you. Uh, and uh, we then later, I, but because I saw that, because that amazing influence during the International Joint Conference on Artificial Intelligence in Karlsruhe, where you came and showed uh, Key uh, from IntelliCorp, I changed my entire career. I was a student wow. of uh, computer science back then. And uh, I was a, uh, I, I, so to speak, I worked for the university uh, on, on, uh, on, the exhibition, on the exhibition floor. And that's how I could see all the various applications. That's when I met uh, McCarthy uh, and so on. Um, and, uh, so, and I was hooked because for the first time I saw that computer science doesn't have to be so terrible, like the traditional languages, Pascal and, uh, you know, assembly languages. I saw that there is a part of computer science that helps code knowledge in a, in a more humanly way and key your knowledge, um, uh, environment, knowledge engineering environment that you developed was the means to do that. So that then uh, led to me, uh, me to uh, do my, uh, my, my uh, master's thesis on 
evaluating tools. And then based on my work and knowledge there, Gabe Gross inter uh, interviewed me and offered me a job. That's how I was hired into IntelliCorp, and that's how we met. I remember that very well. And yeah. uh, great, great story. And uh, and Karlsruhe, that summer in Karlsruhe was quite an experience. We never quite expected that Key would be, uh, you know, so, so rapidly received. Uh, and I think part of it was because, and by the way, that was... Uh, uh, the achievement of a long-term vision of this notion that you could actually sit in front of a computer and instead of looking at things like Fortran code or Pascal, as you mentioned, you can look at things that look like the way we might think about something, uh, look like may have a logic that we can understand. And there is an old video I found the other day of an interview and I forget who was doing it for what purpose, but one of the things that we uh, accomplished in that period of time is people could look at that logic of how the system was solving a problem, what we called an explanation or you know, explaining the decision, and they could critique it. They could say, even though they weren't a programmer, they could say, no, I don't quite think that way. And then we could correct it and run it again until we got it right. And so this transparency of how the computer executed on human thought was a big voila for everyone. They thought, wow, that is a big idea that we now can begin to more cooperatively work with transferring knowledge into a computer program. And that was a really big uh, outcome of the 80s. And that's why there was so much excitement, because we could actually begin to see systems that could reflect some areas of human expertise. Yes, and who else but you are better prone to really bring about that integration? Because for for those old AI folks, you know, who grew up with um, expert systems, now we are all confronted with uh, machine learning as the only thing, and neural nets, and multi-level this and that and the other, and uh, to integrate the two um, is actually the how should I say, the logical consequence of this. So thank you so much for bringing this also into um, the, you know, the attention of our listeners. And so let's move on to you, to what you're doing now, because coming from where you're coming from, you're now, and we just identified that not too long ago, um, applying artificial intelligence within the investment world, in the entrepreneurship world. So... Tell us a little bit about your latest company uh, called CrowdSmart and what does so, it exactly do? Sure, happy to. And it's, uh, it too is kind of a culmination of all the things we're talking about here because one of the, and there's a, there's a company in between, uh, which I want to talk about first and we'll, we'll get to this. Please. So at Informative, after uh, uh, Connect, there was a company, it was first Recipio, then Informative. But it was based on this following idea. Can we use some kind of learning techniques to learn from people using the internet to listen to people? The first wave of the internet, Web 1.0 and even 2.0, were about how do we push people, I mean, how do we push things in front of people cheaply? That is, we could send materials out. We could we didn't have to print stuff. We could just send things at people, send ads at them, send, send, send. No one was listening. 
In fact, when he, as the internet rolled out, it was very hard to find a place to give feedback to a company because the idea for the company is throw things at you, hope you buy them, but don't listen. And that seemed wrong to me because it seemed like there was a two-way channel. Why don't we listen? Why don't we use the internet to listen? And that was what was the uh, onset of Recipio and then Informative. It was an algorithm, was a learning algorithm, which very much like the Google search algorithm, it listened and then it got people to interact with each other and try to learn where they were aligned and where they weren't aligned or around what topics were they aligned. Now, why is that important? Well, that kind of stuff predicts markets. If I know what the thinking is or the desires of a group, the preferences of a group, preferences predict future behavior. So if I have a preference for, for example, um, being able to order shoes over the internet and ship back the ones I don't want at no cost, and I that, that actually strikes me as really kind of cool. I don't like going shoe shopping. All of a sudden, you have a Zappo. So detecting that preference allows a company to be built. Uh, what we learned when we were using this technology with Lego is that their preferences of the builders, the, 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 the kids and the parents, the preferences of the builders to have a big building experience. And so we helped Lego do, use that knowledge that they learned by listening to do the Star Destroyer, which actually transformed the performance of the Lego business because all of a sudden, they were getting three, four hundred dollars for a box of gray bricks when they used to get fifty dollars for a hundred and fifty. So all of a sudden, this is a shift in their business model, and really led to great growth in the way of the company. Now, how did that happen? By understanding the preferences and what people wanted, because it didn't make common sense to say, "Hey, would you want to buy spend four hundred bucks for a box of Legos?" No, everyone would have said no. But understanding what the desires were was able to make that happen. Now that's the emergence of new things. And I thought a long time that, you know, emergence of new things is about startups. Who more than anyone else needs to be able to know, is their idea gonna make it in the market? And that led to the birth of CrowdSmart, uh, which was how can we use this kind of technology to allow startups to have an audience and listen and these audience will include people who could be investors or are investors and have and have there be a dialogue between the listening audience and the startup while we're analyzing those interactions and learn, is there a market in the investor world for this startup? And that's exactly what CrowdSmart does using AI and what we call this idea of learning from a collection of people is called collective intelligence. It turns out that when we, and this by the way is a good human message, when we as a group of humans get together, and if we're diverse, different backgrounds, different experiences, I know Mariana, you had a different background in the way you grew up than I, I grew up, but as we come together, those different perspectives make us smarter. Uh, not as in, you know, but so the collective is smarter, can be smarter than the individual. And collective intelligence is about doing that. Artificial intelligence can then take that collective intelligence and project what it might mean, what the outcome might be. And so that is where we bring collective intelligence together with AI. 
Brilliant. For those listeners who would like to take a um, um, look right now um, on, uh, at uh, CrowdSmart, you can find them on CrowdSmart.io. So let's go back a little bit more into the details. So the, the foundation of CrowdSmart uh, purchased the ba uh, Bayesian learning or Bayesian. I don't know how you pronounce that in English. Can, yeah. Can you tell us more about that? How that works? Yeah, you know, this is really kind of, in some ways, I almost wanted to talk about that at the beginning, is which gets into language and all that kind of stuff. But what, what, and this guy was a, a Presbyterian minister, Reverend Bayes, in the 1700s. He had this idea that we have beliefs, but we need when we, but when we see evidence, we update our beliefs, and he cast that in the form of probability. So I'm, I'm going to give you a simple example. I live along the coast in Half Moon Bay. Every day, I typically drive to San Francisco. In my mind, I might have a belief of how long it's going to take me. And by the way, let's just, you know, you know this is just, you know, hypothesis or a belief of how long it's going to take me to get to work. And maybe, and think of it as a distribution of possibilities with a mean value of 40 minutes. Now, if there are slight variations, it's still going to be, I can guess it's going to be 40 plus or minus five minutes. However, I get some new evidence and I have to go through this tunnel in the mountain to get to San Francisco along the coast. If I get news that that tunnel is closed, now all of a sudden I have to take a different route. And my new reality is I have to estimate that the time to get to the office is going to be more like an hour. And, and still, it may vary around that. So you can see how evidence can shift beliefs to a new probability of something happening. Now, let's just take that into the real world. This is kind of the way we think. And actually, Bayesian thinking is now being viewed as one of the fundamental ideas about human things. We go into a situation with expectations, call those expectations beliefs. We see evidence. And a sane person will then update, <laughs> and I say a sane person because we have people in the world today who are denying things like global warming, uh, so that means that you have to be willing to take evidence and update your beliefs. And that's just a good example. So a healthy human is forever gathering evidence and updating their beliefs. Now there's a mathematics behind that, it's a simple formula. It says you have the probability distribution of what your belief is about something. And then you can say, well, how does the data I'm looking at right now impact that belief? So let's take global warming. I have a belief, and I, this is not me, full disclosure, but let's say I have a belief that global warming is not true. But I observe that there are floods or different things happening that are directly tied to that. Now what I have to either do is update my beliefs or go into so, try to create some new set of beliefs that match the data. And that is exactly what Bayesian thinking is about. And it's a very, you know, so you can take this to startups, right? You go see a startup and you can say, wow, that looks really good. And then you might start to look at the financials, the team, the data, something, whatever you know about it. And either your beliefs will go or and wow, that looks like something I might want to invest in or the more evidence you have, the more you may shift away. You notice, for example, 
that there isn't a healthy relationship between the founding team. That could lead to a breakup of the team. Therefore, your value or your belief about the success of that company goes down. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and this ties in with the... Um with the interests of our audience, which are mostly entrepreneurs, uh, investors, and of course, also entrepreneurs. How, how can, how does it work? They say in Let's terms start. of, yeah, you, you yeah, predict. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I tend to jump in. <laughs> yeah, you predict. We're, that- old, we're old friends for all the listeners. So we, we've had many conversations. And uh, so I sometimes therefore jump into saying, I apologize. No, no, but that, that's, that's what makes it dynamic and interesting. <laughs> It's just over the over the internet is a little difficult, but it doesn't matter. That's okay. So you predict that startup funding success um, is like a eighty percent higher accuracy uh, uh, than without using your system. And the question yeah. is, how does it work, and how can people? Um, join you? How do they? Uh, what is the process of getting involved? And then I have a few more questions. Sure. So let me let me then get into very specific. So if you are, and by the way, for the listeners, if they're interested, just come on. And you, you first of all, you get uh, we qualify people to be. Think of it this: if you are an investor and you're listening, you know the idea of due diligence. So let's just and you may even be have gone to presentations at an accelerator or places like that where you hear like a demo day where you hear all these presentations. Well, now let's suppose you have a process like this. You get to see all that material, and we ask you a question. What do you think about the market opportunity? And what do you, how would you score the market opportunity? You might say, oh, I'd, I'd give it an 8 on a score of 1 to 10. And then we would ask you, well, why? What is on your mind? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about why you think this is a good market opportunity for this particular company? And you write it in in our system. Write it in, write it in, write it in. All along, our system is collecting those ideas. Now, we say, okay, good to hear from you. Now, what we'd like you to do is we're going to show you some things that other people who are also evaluating this exact startup, what their thoughts are. We're going to sample some of them. And all we want you to do is click on the ones you agree with, but put them in order of how strongly you agree with it. So you might say, wow, this one's priority one, this one's priority two, this one's priority three. Enter. Now, what you've told our collective system is your thoughts and the other members of the group that you agree with or what or not. And then that goes over and over and over again over a period of about three weeks. And guess what? At the end, we have a collective knowledge model of what the various reviewers, say 25 people, and they may come from all different walks of life and background, different investment experiences. We have a view of what they think, what their scores are, and what all their ideas are. We run that, all of that data, through a machine learning model that's been trained. And now we've been for four years following the judgments, and then what happened? Judgments, what happened? And so we look, did that startup that was judged to be good by this group actually go on and do something good? Did they raise the money? Did they sell product? Did they grow? Did they raise a follow-on investment and an increased valuation? So we track against that and we continuously retrain the model. So by now, if you come on the system and go through one of these, 
after a couple of weeks of this interaction, and by the way, it only takes 30 minutes. To, it's all asynchronous, so you can do it at your leisure. So it takes 30 minutes to maybe two or three hours, depending on how interested you are in a startup. And at the end of that, we'll have a package of knowledge. And for, for those of you who remember the days of expert system, what we just described is a knowledge acquisition process automatically. And we take that knowledge now and say, what does it mean? And then we track that projection against reality. And you do that enough and you have accuracy and that's the accuracy you were alluding to. It's 85% right now. We update it every quarter. And what, how does that measure out? Well, all the companies that have scored well, 85% in that range have actually not only finished their investment round, they've gone on to build somewhat of a business and have gone on about 80% of them after 12 to 18 months went on to raise more money at a higher valuation. So that's pretty predictive, and that's where that comes from. But that prediction really came from the minds, the right collection of human beings. Now, if you look at that, what we're detecting is the formation of an investor interest market around this startup. Remember what I said about preferences? Predict future behavior. If you start to see something you want to be part of and you want to invest in, and you start to see a collection of people around that, growing enthusiasm, you want to get in on the ground floor, and that precipitates a movement towards investment, and that is the process we are measuring. Brilliant. Uh, my, many people that, um, and I, I, it was my thought, that um, read information on your website and about applying collective intelligence might think of um, the book by James Sorowski, The Wisdom of Crowds. How does that compare? Because we all know um, the downfalls of that, the wisdom and the downfalls. How does yes. that compare with uh, applying collective intelligence to investing? That's a great question, Mariana. And you must do this because you're really asking good questions. <laughs> but no, that's a great question. In fact, it is a perfect question because Initially, you might say, oh, my gosh, wisdom of crowds. Yeah, that's great for guessing the weight of a cow. Right. But it's not going to work when you have to do something as expertise. For example, one of the companies we evaluated was a company that built a deep learn or had was building a deep learn, a, a chip that ran deep learning models on a hearing aid battery of power. I mean, really crazy, wild idea. And why, why would that work, et cetera, et cetera. And we were able to predict that that company would go on to success. And we did invest in it. And it did go on to success. Got investments from Intel and Microsoft. Now, how can you do, how can you do that with just pulling in random people? You don't. That does not work. Wisdom of crowds doesn't work for something like this. Collective intelligence is different. It says, I want to know about each individual. What is their expertise? How is it balanced? So, Mariana, the fact that you're uh, a computer scientist by background, but you've had these other experiences, you bring a unique perspective. And I, I know you, and you have a deep interest in understanding who are the people behind this and a deep insight into if you get to the right kind of people, a good thing will come out of it. But if you don't, if you really want to know who is the team. And so that expertise is really important because you're right about that. But that's not the only thing. There may be someone else 
out there who is an expert in the market of this company. And they may focus on that. You, can you see now if we have the right collection of experts with different perspectives? You may, we try to have people on the evaluation that might be users of that product. What do you think? Would you buy this product? Would you invest in this company? So there you see we have known participants of different perspectives, much like any investor would do if they build an investment committee. They might bring in some consultants about the technology. They might bring in some consultants about the market opportunity. All of that, we just make them all interact together and work off of each other and get the best information out of them that way. Brilliant. Uh, you know, I, I'm asking because I know from experience, you know, we invested with the Angels Forum in Palo Alto for um, over a decade. And uh, when we had uh, those startups present themselves and then, uh, you know, they would leave and then we would begin talking about what we think, da, da, da. The first person who said something about the startup actually set the pace for the thinking of the rest. <laughs> That's correct. And so because it's, it's asynchronous in your case and offline and remote and so on, you know, you manage to gather the, the intelligence of the crowd without having each other influence each other. Um, so that's, right. that's one important aspect. So that's how you can turn your knowledge into wealth. So, so in another statement, you say on, on, I think in an article that you wrote, you said that uh, humans and machines are far more accurate together than alone. I couldn't agree more. Um, can you tell us about how that, yeah, how the system well, works? Well, there's a lot of experiments on that. And in fact, it's, it's interesting, just this Sunday, I was hanging out with Scott Page. Uh, uh, he was in town. He's a... If, you don't, if your listeners don't know about Scott, I, he's, uh, he, his most recent book is called The Model Thinker. He's a, uh, one of the leading figures in collective intelligence that, you know, is really defining this, has done many experiments. So he, one of the first books he had out was called Difference, and it's really, he's hammered the importance of diversity. And what we mean by diversity in collective intelligence is what I just alluded to, different points of view. So if you think about it this way, uh, you go way back, there's an old proverb that says there's wisdom in a group of counselors, right? Having many counselors makes you more wise. It's the same idea. This is a modern form of that. If you bring together people with these different backgrounds and perspectives and experiences, and this does tie into things like different cultural backgrounds, male and female, different ways of looking at things. If you bring those people together, they'll be way smarter than any individual expert. Let me give you an example. In any area, the expert in that area is often the worst at predicting the next thing. Everyone has heard the story about IBM saying, well, Thomas Watson saying, well, maybe there'll be a market for five of these things, but they're just big and complicated. Kind of wrong. Or then you know, maybe know that uh, the CEO of digital equipment said, who would want a personal computer? No one. I mean, it was about many computers. Who wants a personal computer? He forecasted it would ever be a personal computer. Great. And then you have Bob Metcalf, who invented the Ethernet, saying, forecasted, as he's quoted on this, the Internet will collapse in 1996. That was his forecast, his prophecy. Didn't happen. That's because the people often who are the deepest experts in the field don't have the perspective to see where it might go. So 
collection of experts or collection of people with different perspectives will lead you to more ideas and possibilities for than, than simply, uh, and for example, Airbnb would be a great example. How, would, would, what expert in the hotel industry would predict that renting your house out to have people uh, you know, sleep on your couch was gonna turn their, uh, you know, basically ruin their future business? No one. But if you talk to the right collection of people, they would see it, that this could be an opportunity that suddenly would take hold. And so that is the, the value of collective expertise is seeing the possibilities in the future that you may not see if you're dyed in the wool expert in your category. Right, brilliant, and that's that's what AI can help us uh, sort through. So, yeah, and so by the way, in the system, we make sure that your identity is not known to the other person. We just want the value of the idea. So you could be the most you know, you could be uh, a Mark Andreessen putting in this idea or anybody else. doesn't matter. What really matters is, is your idea good? And that's what our system does, is it removes the identity. Now, what comes out of that is an amazing thing. For example, we have invested in about, I don't know, eight to ten more female-backed startups than the average VC. Why? Well, we just had a system that was less tuned to systematic bias. And you you can talk to any woman founder and she will tell you be, before I have data is the hardest time at the seed level. And we you know you can talk to some of our female founders and they'll tell you that because they're not trusted in the same way. They're not treated in the same way. And that's because of cultural bias. However, on our system, because we're really focusing everybody on the idea and on the team as well, but looking at the team in a different way, giving it an opportunity for people to see what they can do. Suddenly, our, we, you know, we don't have a large number, but of the 27 companies we invested in, more than half are run by females or minorities. That's not the way Sand Hill Road operates. And so this idea of collective is not only best for investors because you discover the best investment, but it's also best for everyone. It's best for the world. Of course, I couldn't agree more. Yes. So when, um, how do you program that? I mean, I, I was going to ask you about um, programmers bias. How do you, I mean, I know you, <laughs> that's probably you as a, as the carrier of the culture bias, you represent that, but how do you explicitly avoid programmers bias, culture bias? How, what do you do? in order to, um, to make your system avoid those biases? A lot is by making it data-driven. So a lot of early stage investing, let's just look at what actually happens. Somebody knows someone who knows someone, and you know they have a good hunch that they, this might be good, and they put money in it. There's not a lot of due diligence. And so they, if you just buy virtue of the fact, shifting it to what's the business, in other words, it might be, hey, this person went to MIT or this person went to Stanford and, you know, we know who they are, probably a good idea. You know, they're, they're coming out of the right place, you know. There's that kind of thinking, that systematic bias thinking. Um, where and, and, and so what you do is you focus on, you get all the evaluators 
to focus on the, 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 the company, the team, and just, and then you don't, you remove identity. So we don't know. And then furthermore, on the back end, we know. Uh, so we can test the system. So I can, for example, I can look at, for a female-run startup, we can look at how would the males vote versus the females. And by the way, generally, there's not any difference when you do it in this format where it's not so heavily loaded. Just think of the difference between somebody having to walk into a room on Sand Hill Road, a conference room, filled and you say you're a female founder, and you're walking into a conference room that most of the time is going to be dominated by men, um, and you have to give a presentation. Think of that, just think of the social pressures, what that might do, versus you have your data online, your, your people are looking at the data, what you're doing first, and then they're interviewing you to get your thoughts and ideas, but you're not in that same situation. It's just about the ideas, et cetera. So notice how that removes a lot of that old stuff, you know, that would, so we don't have to, we have to design an environment that encourages openness and diversity, but the data itself will speak for itself. We don't do anything special to the program. We just try to set up a situation that removes all the bias triggers that typically happen. Like, you know, as you walk into the room, what are they wearing? That's that, that kind of stuff. You want to remove all that kind of stuff and find out what's at the core. What's important about this company? What's important about this team? Yeah, and well, that's that's an intentional um, behavior. So that already addresses um, a lot of stuff that other people don't look at. So when um, what happened after the investment is made? So is uh, this might go over way and beyond uh, the the system that you have envisioned or crowd smart. But uh, as we all know, 80% of the investment risk is with the team after the investment. How, <clears throat> do you get involved in that? Do you? Um, yes, yes, we, we say we follow the companies. First of all, we want to follow their data. Mm -hmm. So we're, we are going, we will track all companies we can that we touch uh, through the entire process. And by the way, I just will say we are expanding as a beginning of this year we actually are moving away from having our own fund and opening up the platform as diligence as a service to other investors. So we are no longer going to be an investment company. We are a technology company in service of investors. And so, uh, but uh, there will still be this notion of the collective portfolio that was scored on this platform. And we will, uh, we will track both those companies that we invested in and the ones that we did not. Um, but we used to keep a relationship and we actually have some tools and services we will be offering to companies where they can use this technology to help them learn about and grow with their market. For example, one of the things we will be rolling out, I haven't done it quite yet, but we have an ability for those companies to measure and diagnose net promoter score. That is, can they detect virility of their product in the market? And so there are things like that where we can provide a similar kind of listening and learning services to our startups so they can track their opportunities in their market. This is brilliant uh, because my next question was uh, what pieces of advice would you give our listeners? And so offering um, due diligence as a service, 
How would that work, let's say, for a German investor or a European investor? How do you um, um, intend to open that up for investments outside of the United States or even outside the Valley? We're actually in discussions with uh, a variety of, uh, and, and it's, it's thanks for bringing this up because we actually did as of the beginning of this year kind of get more of a global uh, focus as well. And so if you think about it this way is we have right now a community of uh, 2,600 accredited investors and experts, et cetera. And they're spread around. I mean, there's some in Japan, there's some in Singapore, there's some in Europe. Uh, but most of the investment opportunities right now are coming through the U.S. But we're develop we develop partnerships. So uh, we don't have, I don't think, any in Germany at the moment. And we open to some. Uh, but it would be with either an accelerator. We have programs for accelerators where they can use a lightweight form of our product to help with screening startups that are coming into their They're accelerators. We work with uh, VCs or investor groups, family offices, where they can bring deals to the platform that can be scored, evaluated in conjunction. And we, we, uh, and for that, we charge a, a you know a PayPal-like fee. If it's successful, if there is a transaction, then we get, collect a uh, a fee on the dollars in. We do not charge the startups, and we do not charge members. There's no fee to members because uh, we simply want, you know, we're, our, our model, our business model is based on success. We have a lot of faith that what we're doing is going to work. So it's transactions based on success that will then pay, uh, you know, pay for, uh, pay for the bit. And we also then work also with corporations that are trying to find the startups that might help them in the next generation of their business. <laughs> well, bring in. Let's talk off um, um, after the call. <laughs> It wouldn't be the first time, my dear friend, that we work together. <laughs> Now, this is pretty new. We, in fact, even when we had dinner in January, we we're just beginning to move in this direction, and we just now are. So, very specifically, even if someone wants to say, "Hey, I want to use this kind of technology in my own garden," you know, I want to have my own membership. I want to have my own. You know, essentially use the technology for my own world. We actually have a model for that now as well. So uh, uh, as we expand, we're a whole idea here. So here's a vision for the world that if, if there's an early stage business, that a score like the CrowdSmart score and the information provided will allow investors anywhere to make a decision about that investment, much like they would in a public stock. That is, there's enough data, there's enough information, the scores are calibrated enough against market performance that they can trust it. It's uh, like a Moody's rating or something like that, where it's a score where if you're an investor and you say, oh, this, like Cynthia at this deep learning chip company got a 93 on Crossmark, got a 93, and by the way, it attracted investments from Intel, et cetera, and, and Microsoft and many others. Um, and so if, it, if that's true, then you can say, ah, if this company gets that score, then we can trust that and we can put money in uh, that company. And that's our mission. And so for that reason, we want to make the technology available, have it adopted broadly, so this becomes a trusted way 
And what we really want to see, our real desire, and this gets back to maybe the missionary part of me, I want to see the startups that truly are talented, whether it's some uh, women on the Gaza Strip who have a great idea but are in a very difficult situation, or it's someone in you know, various parts of Germany or wherever, wherever they are, if they have a great business idea worthy of investment, it is a chance to see the light of day and attract capital. Uh, and there's a lot of capital out there, and I think there's a lot of talent out there, but there needs to be better systems for matching talent to the opportunity of building a business. And that's really what we want to you know, make happen globally, that any startup team that's qualified, and again, no matter what their background is, culture, et cetera, and they have a great idea that can be innovative, transformative, uh, we want to see that company get scored and get capital. Oh, brilliant. This is um, right along the line of, uh, of what we stand for, as you know, at Apple. And uh, yes. so absolutely, let's, let's do that. Oh, by the way, I've uh, just been elected the European Female Investor of the Year 2019. <laughs> and uh, and uh, also um, a fellow in the World Academy of Art and Science. So... Awesome. Yeah. So let's talk about this. I'm, I'm really excited. But you've been very generous with your time. Let's uh, come to the end. Two more questions. One is, how do you, what do you do to stay this wonderful, beautiful human being that you are, you know, on the inside? Um, how do you, what is your daily transformative practice? How do you take care of yourself so you can take care of all of us? Uh, I read deeply and walk a lot. <laughs> so I think there's things. No, I seriously, I, 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 and I actually monitor use of digital media, even though we're on some right now. And what I mean by that is uh, prescriptive reading as opposed to reactive. And, and, and so often with our mobile phones, we can get reactive, just what's coming at us, or with news. And, uh, I, and I believe in, you know, be prescriptive, use your time for the things you want, not what the world is telling you you should do. And then get out in nature and walk. My wife, uh, as I know Mariana, you know my wife, but she is all about what, you know, this notion of allow nature, getting out in nature to give you a fresh perspective every day. And happily, I live on the coast side and I can do that frequently. So that is... Uh, and then surround yourself with people like yourself, friends, and uh, maintain those friendships for a lifetime. Uh, because really, at the end of the day, and this I'll quote Warren Buffett on this one. He says, "At the end of the at the end, what really matters is the people. Do the people who say they love you really love you? In other words, are they relating to you for the right things? Not your money, or not any what you can do for them, but do we have relationships that have true value?" And that's probably at the end of it what attracts me to working with startups or whatever, because it's a lot of people and working on a team, relationships that matter. And I really believe that is the core uh, to uh, keeping your life rich. Wow, that's, um, that's a wonderful ending. Thank you so much, Tom, for your time. And please give my love to your beautiful uh, love. Um, Laurie, and uh, we'll be in touch. I really appreciate your time, and um, have a wonderful day. Say hello to California for me. I will. It's a sunny day here in San Francisco. 
Thank you, Mariana. It's been delightful. For more info on Dr. Kaler, visit the link in the show notes or search for his blog on crowdsmart.io. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.